It was a multi-million dollar deal that came this close to falling apart and taking Rafat Ali's whole media startup down with it. And I just broke down, like that was, it's just us. We're done, we're done as a company. Because we, we didn't have any money and uh, I had already walked away from the term sheet. And so I called my banker who really just rescued the deal. We had to take a cut, um, but he rescued the deal. So I've never told this story, never. Rafat Ali has done something remarkable in an era where it's really tough to make money telling people the truth. He built and sold Paid Content, a site that covered the digital media revolution with trenchant foresight. And now he's built Skift, an information company focused on the travel and dining industries. I'm John Fort from CNBC, and you're listening to the Fort Knox podcast, Rich Ideas and Powerful People. I do this weekly, bringing you the highest achievers. We're going to learn how the very best climb to the top and pull out lessons along the way. If that sounds good to you, make this a habit. Apple's podcast app is the most popular way to tune in, but there are all kinds of ways. Mainly, I want you to subscribe, and the internet can do the work for you. I sat down with Rafat Ali at the NASDAQ market site in Times Square, to get an insider's look at how you revolutionize a crumbling industry. Rafat's a guy whose career I've sort of passively followed as a journalist for a long time. When I was writing for a newspaper in Silicon Valley 18 years ago, I saw him toughing it out on the opposite coast. And as he's jumped into entrepreneurial ventures, I leaped from newspapers to magazines to broadcast while crafting my own digital projects, like Fort Knox. Anyway, Part of the brilliance of Rafat Ali is his ability to draw lessons from one industry that are prophetic in another. So even if you're not into media or travel, there's something in here for you. Here's Rafat Ali. Five and a half years into the journey of Skift, uh, my role as the CEO has certainly changed. We're about 50 people now. So as 50. a company, yeah, yeah, almost 50. We have four open positions. We just posted a position today. Managing editor is actually a, a pretty senior position for us. And we consider ourselves a travel business information company, um, much like I would say in the vein of CNBC or Bloomberg, just for very much focused on the business of travel and now dining as well, which I can talk about. We've moved mm. beyond travel into the business of dining. So business information manifests itself as media, all, t all types of digital, primarily print as well, um, podcasts, et cetera, um, events. Research, it, we, we, we sell high-priced research on the business of travel, different parts of the industry. What do you, what do you consider high-priced research? Um, so uh, I know everybody has been talking about Axios and $10,000. Our, ours cost thirty-five dollars to $50,000 a year. Mm. So it's expensive. Um, but these are corporations that buy individual subscriptions. Like if you were to buy, well, you're media, so you'd probably get it for free. But if, if, if somebody in the industry were to buy, it's $2,100 individual subscription, mm. uh, which you get 24 reports a year. But if you're a company like, for instance, Marriott or Expedia or, or any of those, anywhere from thirty-five dollars to, to 50000 it's actually now closer to 50000 now uh, a year. And you enterprise-wide, you have access to it. Um, so our, our mix is a balance of daily news analysis about the business of travel and dining now. Um, research, which has a longer timeline, more deeper, obviously paid, and then our conferences. So we do this big Skiff Global Forum in New York, in Europe. We're launching ones in Silicon Valley this year. We're launching one in Asia next year as well. So, you know, it's not rocket science. It's, it's, it's media and information, um, but 
we've completely sort of captured uh, the mind share. If you ask anybody in travel today, really anybody in travel, like you search for anything about travel on Google, you will not, it's very hard to miss us. Rocket science is arguably easier than building, <laughs> building a successful media. media business. Oh my God, yeah. In, in the past 10 to 20 years. Mm -hmm. So how did you get here? What did you want to be when you grew up? Um, I was just thinking about this yesterday. So 2018 is 20 years of me being as a journalist. I started writing back when I was in India as a, as a, as a undergrad, after undergrad. Mm -hmm. Uh, I was born in UK, was only there for a year, lived in the US five years. So when, from six till 24, I grew up in India. So my formative years, for most part, were in India, in northern India. Uh, what I wanted to be, I wanted to be um, an engineer first, because that's what all parents, Indian parents, <laughs> want their kids to be. So I listened to them and went into that. But halfway into the course, I lost all interest. I was doing computer engineering, so BTEC. And I was learning C and Unix. This is back in the early 90s, mm. mid 90s. Um, got bored and had visions of me sitting behind like the desk and coding. This was back before like developers were the rock stars they are now. Back then, the path, yeah, the yeah. path was that you would work for an Indian outsourcing shop and just be like a coder monkey or whatever, whatever they were called back then. Um, I just didn't want to do it. And so um, uh, I really, I somehow got hooked into advertising. I started reading books about advertising, the business of advertising in the, at the university library, and somehow said that I wanted to be a copywriter. A copywriter? That, that was very glamorous. This is like <laughs> the David Ogilvy's of the world. Back right. in the days, I read all those books. Yeah. Um, and then moved to Delhi from the small town I was in, which is how what everybody did at that point in time. Tried to find a job in advertising agency, just you know, as an entry level intern, whatever it was. Couldn't get it, and then I went into PR, just PR agency. I was this is pre-web days. It's, uh, internet came slightly later in India than it did here, so it was pre-web days in the mid '90s. So yeah. I was like, not mid '90s, '97, '98. I was cutting clips uh, from newspapers, and I used to deliver press releases like physically go on a bus, because you know this is what we could afford, <laughs> go on a bus from the office to the Times of India, the largest newspaper in India, or others, and drop yeah. off the press releases, huh. not even email. But then what happened is I got exposed to the other side saying, like, journalists, this is what I want to do. Like, I want to write. And then what did I know? I knew about the business of advertising, because I read a lot. And so I applied to this magazine called a and which was like the ad age of India back then. Mm -hmm. Turns out now ad age is in India. They have like a licensee there. But back then it wasn't. So it was a monthly print publication. And so I wrote the editor how I really liked it. He took a chance on me. I joined it, started writing about just the business of advertising. A few months, this is 97. A few months into it, sorry, 98. A few months into it, the first ever internet conference happened in India in Delhi. So the guy who used to write about tech, he was out sick that week. This was a true story. Uh, he was out sick that week. Yeah. My editor said, hey, Rafa, didn't you do computers in your undergrad? Why don't you go and see what this internet thing is? And so I went and got hooked. So um, I you know, interviewed a bunch of people. I, you know, I had an email account by then. We were using, I think this is 
pre-graphical interface in India. This is like the Lynx browser phase. Um, but then I saw like the high-speed T1. I said, holy shit, like this is great. So that's how I got hooked. So then we started writing about the early internet portals in India, portal phase. This was the early portal phase. Yeah, um, 99. Yeah, 98, 99. And then said, well, opportunity is in the U.S., so let me apply for master's in the U.S. Uh, applied for like five different journalism schools that had you know, digital media or early in those days, like new media concentrations. Indiana. Was that, was that master's degree because you felt like you needed to learn these things or master's degree to get to the U.S.? Ladder. Yeah. That was the only way. So my friends who were computer engineers back from my days were coming to U.S. This is uh, Y2K time. So they were coming um, to get jobs in the Y2K period. I just, because I never pursued coding after that, um, I didn't have that option. I didn't want to go that option. So I took the harder route, which is academics. So um, at that time, uh, this is probably too much detail, but at that time, the Indian, there was a the hard, hard right nationalist government came into uh, for the first time in India. Mm -hmm. And us being Muslims, we said, I think there's a ceiling here for us that we should sort of leave India. It didn't really go that bad until now, but that's a whole different line down. We can go down. Um, and so we, we, like four of us said, we, we have to leave, leave India, and three of our friends left the software route. I left the, the academic route. The academic route brought him to New York and its burgeoning scene covering tech, Silicon Alley. After joining other people's efforts, he eventually started Paid Content, a site that dug into the changes affecting music, TV, print, and beyond, and the businesses behind them. And then when Internet started coming back 2004, 2005, like the economy started coming back, um, Paid Content became all the ways in which content gets paid for, advertising, subscriptions, hybrids, etc., etc. Micropayments, iTunes had, had launched, uh, had shown a different way in the music industry. What we were doing then, which is the lesson I've also taken uh, with me with Skift, is um, back, back in 2002, media, entertainment, information industries. Media, entertainment, information were three separate industries that um, people didn't really connect the dots across them. So it wasn't very obvious why newspaper industry executives should really, really care about what's happening with the music industry. Music industry was the first ones to, to get hit. Now, obviously, it's blindingly obvious uh, why they should have looked at. Consumers got control, and you know the, the economics of the industry completely changed. So we were joining the dots across all these three industries. I was, and then we hired people, and then that grew. Uh, so content became the common thread across, like content became the thing across all industries. In travel, I've taken that and said historically in travel, the, the, the business publications or trades have been focused on either hotels or airlines or destinations or cruises or tech. Very, very narrow in their own sectors. Mm -hmm. um, very little understanding of the consumer is in control, has the digital tools, globalization has happened. They don't, the consumers don't really care the, of like the different silos of value chains, whatever you want to call it, in travel. They're just using tools to book. Now, I, I want to get to travel because it seems like a sharp left turn. Here's a guy who starts off studying engineering, doesn't want to do that, is sharp into left advertising turn is probably the story and of content, my life. <laughs> yes. right? you know, gets into advertising and content, comes to New York, does all this stuff, focused on content and the business of content, and then travel. 
Yeah. So, but in between there, with some pretty decent timing, I think, you yeah. sold paid content. Yeah, so I raised uh, a comically low half million dollar Series A. These days, obviously, that doesn't happen. From Alan, Alan um, Patrikoff, who we were his first investment out of his new fund, Craycroft, which uh, is a big fund now here in New York City. And we were second exit. So we were first investment. I think there was another one, Huffington Post, was one of his early investments, too, back in the days. So Half a million dollars. Half a million dollars. Okay. Um, series A. Right. Um, <laughs> price Not angel, but Series no, A. No, no, no. This is pre, um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, pre any of that stuff. Um, but uh, but it, he really understood. I was, a, you know, a young guy. I'd moved from New York to London. From London, I moved back to U.S. in L.A. I was there five years. Um, and every digital media company that he was trying to invest in, every time he spoke to them, our name came up. Like, oh, yeah, we read paid content, or paid content said this, or according to paid content. And so that's why I remember sitting at a desk in, a, in, a, in my bedroom in Santa Monica, and the phone rings, and so this is Alan's office who wants to talk to you. And I had heard about him, obviously, a very storied venture capitalist. Oh, so you didn't even ask him for money? No. He, his, his <laughs> office cold called me. He cold called you with an offer for a half million dollars? Well, it didn't really happen from the phone call. Okay. But he wanted to meet me uh -huh. and wanted to invest. And Did so, he say how much he wanted to invest? Did he no, say how much do you no. need? No. So Did it just so happened that I was coming to New York like next week for a conference or something. So right. I met him. I remember at the Pierre Hotel. Conference at the Pierre Hotel. And, like I spoke to him for 20 minutes. I was a kid running around. And like in 20 minutes he like was saying things about how you should build a business that took me like four years to understand. <laughs> he knew this stuff obviously. So um, it took a while from there because we, you know, it was just me as a solo blogger. I think I'd Stacy Kramer, who became the executive editor along the way, um, and sort of my co-founder almost uh, as well. Um, but so half a million. So 2006 is when we got that money. 2008. Um, a half million dollars to do what now? What do you do? To to hire more people. We had How started. How many people did you have at that point? Five or six or something. Okay. Very small team. Uh, it was two, three editorial people, one or two salespeople. Um, so you were selling? Yeah, I was selling myself yeah. initially. Uh, there's a story about me back in Wired in 2003. I was in London, a kid. Uh, the headline was, if you search for bloggers making bucks, that was the headline. And I think it still comes up in like the first first page of Google, uh, sitting in the East London flat, like leaking from two places, and that was me. <laughs> so I was making enough money personally just to you know get by. Yeah, to keep blogging. Yes, and to do what I love to do. Pay for cup of noodles yes. or whatever yes. else. Right? It really yeah. was that. Um, <laughs> and I guess the same as a salary as an entry-level journalist back then. Um, and um, and then when I moved to U.S. in 2004, the economy started coming back, so like paid content became a thing, or con the business of media was becoming a thing. And so, yeah, I think salespeople and journalists who we hired, some of them may have been, I don't remember exactly, but probably freelancers initially. I think I remember some of them, not full-time. Um, then um, by the time we got investment and then after that, we started a conference that was hugely successful back in, we did the first ever business conference on social media uh, back in like Beverly Hilton. It was Beverly Hilton, it was a big hotel, but we were based in LA. And like the day before the Emmys, I remember. 
Um, and uh, it was a thing where we sold out of tickets a month before the conference and like people were buying boots just to get in. So it was very early days. MySpace was the thing. Facebook did not did not exist or was very... Or so, yeah, niche. 2007 or something. Yeah. Is it? I'm sure yeah, it's... Yeah, yeah. It is. I, re I remember, let's see, 2006, I left the San Jose Mercury News. 2007, I was at Business 2.0 and that's when oh, Facebook yeah. opened up to non-university people. Okay. Right. So, so it was just becoming just becoming a thing. So more like Krista Wolf network. was there, the rock star at our conference. He was in LA, obviously. Uh, Ross had either just bought it, and Jason Hershon had just lost it because he was at MTV. <laughs> They're all there in the audience. It was like one of those moments. Um, so so that became a business for us. The conferences was a big business for us. Um, and then we went to about 25 people at our peak, uh, editorial people in US, UK, India. Um, and the next year you sold it? 2008, so two years later, 2006 and two, yeah, after the conference, yeah, 2008 right. I, we sold it. We were out raising our second round, Series B. I think we had like a $4 million round. Um, we had two term sheets, we picked one, and then Guardian came in. We had already signed a binding term sheet. Um, so the pain that we had to go through f just to get out of that term sheet, we had to pay them off, the, the venture, the investor, just to get out of the term sheet, mm. um, which uh, came out of my pocket. It kind of hurt. But, um, and then, um, so Guardian bought us July 9th, 2008 is when we signed the deal, I remember still. Rumored $30 million. Uh, yes, rumor thirty million dollars, um, which we never confirmed, but it's all. But I always uh, confirmed the rumor thirty million dollars. <laughs> um, it was fine. Um, we had earnouts and stuff, so we didn't necessarily hit that. I mean, the world went helter skelter mm. a few months later. Mm -hmm. So timing-wise, it was great. I still remember it was either the managing director of Morgan Stanley UK, some woman, who told the Guardian board. She was on the Guardian board to not do this deal. Mm. She said that the shit is about to hit the fan. She was right. And she was right. <laughs> and so they had walked away. We went to the lawyer's office to sign the deal with the banker. No, no, with my CEO. I'd hired a CEO by then. And they said, we're, we're not going to do the deal. Like, we had been working on this for months. I had run out of reserve, cash reserves for the company because we were so focused on the, getting the deal done. And I just broke down. Like that was, it's just, us. we're done. We're done as a company. Because we, we didn't have any money and the, I had already walked away from the term sheet. And so I called my banker who really just rescued the deal. We had to take a cut, um, but he rescued the deal. So I've never told this story, never. Um, and um, anyway, that was an exercise in, as a first time founder, learning all kinds of stuff. Uh, including earnouts and how terrible they are for founders in general. I know why companies have to do it. Um, and just like how many things out of your control if you're, you know, if you're trying to do a deal. Um, how did he rescue the deal? He rescued the deal. I had no idea how he rescued the deal. We, 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 we took, maybe it was a, we figured it was a negotiating ploy, but they had walked away from the deal. After the deal was done, the buyer couldn't figure out what to do with paid content, and Rafa didn't stay long. 
And then, so I checked out a year later. They tried to sell us a year later. Um, or our immediate bosses tried to go to the Guardian board to, and the Guardian CEO, Carolyn McCall, vetoed it because she said, I read Skift, uh, pay content every day. I get value out of it. How have you guys, and they were all guys below her, not figured out how to make a business out of it? So they shelved the deal, shelved the deal to sell us. Mm -hmm. And then they sold us a few years later. I had left to, to Gigaom, Gigaom, whatever happened at Gigaom. But um, so, you know, I, it took me a, a bit of a time to get over it. I traveled for two years. So I left in summer of 2010. That's the part that I wanted to get to. You yeah. traveled for two years. Yeah. Is what else do founders, single founders do? <laughs> Is Anything this where else? the travel thing came from? Uh, yes and no. I think that the, um, the way in which we look at the world of travel and it's eclectic connecting the dots part mm -hmm. came from my travels because I saw the business of travel intertwined with everything in the world. Right. I mean, sometimes people travel to figure out what it is that they want to do next. And in this case, maybe it was this meta thing where you wanted to do travel. I d uh, a lot of the <laughs> travel startups, travel a lot of the startups in travel, uh, you would not be surprised to hear, do come from, from people traveling. <laughs> they figured out, they think they figured out the, the problems to the world's travel problems, the, the solutions to the world's travel problems. Um, and so mine wasn't like an aha moment, but I was looking, 2010 was, if you remember, iPad had just come out the first time. Mm -hmm. Everybody was trying to figure out what would a touch-based interface look like for media, all the path at which all the big media went down. And then there were a bunch of startups trying to figure out. So I wanted to do a Lonely Planet 2.0 in a touch-based world. I, in fact, tried to buy Lonely Planet from BBC. I went in with a media company that I don't think I'm supposed to say. But um, but you can. It was Hearst. But <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, we really had just like a couple of conversations with BBC. Mm -hmm. Turns out they weren't interested in selling the print. They said you could take the digital, which we were really interested in the digital, and create a whole digital thing. And then turns out they later sold uh, the full thing, but it never went anywhere. They couldn't um, reconcile whatever it was they were trying to reconcile. And so I was trying to learn about the business of travel by reading the trades in the space because I was trying to do a, a company in the, in the guidebook, touch-based guidebook business. Just realized how bad the trades and how boring and old school the trades were and said, well, that's the opportunity. And then let me start that. So that's how Skift came about. I met my co-founder, Jason Clampett, who's the editor-in-chief now uh, and also leading our dining uh, expansion, um, 2011, and then 2012, in the summer of 2012, I started, uh, we started Skift. And so it was three of us, as a, our first employees, he's now the executive editor, Dennis. If you were to try to encapsulate the way that travel has fundamentally changed over the past, I don't know whether it's five or 10 years, mm -hmm. And I guess it's sort of like post-web browser. We, we know about you know, the, the travel agent being taken out of the picture uh, and, and what happened when the, when the web first became. But there's been another important shift that I think a lot of us have a hard time articulating, where it's gotten, on the one hand, even more personal. But on the other hand, there are certain aspects of travel we, we can't entirely handle ourselves. And something else is yeah. happening. What, what is it? Yeah, I mean, so the thing about travel and uh, 
is that um, uh, travel inspiration is everywhere today, everywhere. You know, every feed, every feed you open up, there's travel photos of your friends or somebody who's there. So that's completely changed. Meaning, travel is ever present around us. Travel inspiration is ever present around us. Used to be that there used to be this thing called travel cycle, where it's inspiration phase, research phase, booking phase, travel phase, and post-travel phase. Discrete objects. Now we're all constantly now it's in inspiration all constantly phase. Constantly in inspiration phase, and probably even research phase, for all you know. Um, even uh, and then, of course, the post. Travel phase used to be the sharing phase. Turns out the sharing phase is, is as you're starting, during the whole thing is all sharing and everything. So, you know, nobody shares after the travel is sort of, you know, too late at that point, right? <laughs> um, like somebody now, if they post, we went last week to Morocco. I said, it took you a week to post these photos? <laughs> like, um, yeah. Peak jealousy I, is look where I, I am I right know, now. Right now, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So I think the ever-present nature of it has changed travel. It has obviously led to a boom in, in general travel per se. It has changed how us as locals explore cities, uh, I think, in, in many ways as well, where we're constantly looking for the next new thing in our, in our cities. Last night we discovered a great Egyptian restaurant in Astoria, and guess what we did? You know, shared it, obviously. <laughs> um, so I think that exploration part Part, part bragging has become the driving force in travel um, led by social media. So I think that's fundamentally changed um, our behavior as well as the business of travel in so many different ways. Um, the multi-platform nature of travel research and booking is really, really, really hard for companies to figure out. Hmm. You start research on a mobile, do you actually book on mobile or do you book um, on, the, on your desktop, or these days, no, the laptop. Um, who uses desktop these days? Um, I guess people do in large companies. It's like a workstation now. I, I yeah, actually, I'm, I'm thinking I have a desktop, but I don't really. It's a laptop. It's a laptop to a to with the yeah. monitor. I think that's <laughs> yeah. probably what these days is a workstation yeah. or a desktop. Um, so, um, and then uh, there's big battles in travel happening. One is um, the rise of the Chinese traveler in general and how it's completely um, changed in terms of economics and everybody's trying to figure out how to attract the Chinese traveler. US was obviously big on that list. Uh, 2017 was not that great for, for us uh, in the travel industry uh, for reasons that you know we can go into. Um, but 2017 was a great year for travel uh, overall globally. Mm. Um, all the economies are back and in many ways Europe is back. Europe was really hurting two, two, three years ago, what a mix of terrorism or, or, or just in general economies and stuff. Um, so the rise of the Chinese traveler has certainly changed. Everybody wants to attract the Chinese travelers, hundreds of millions of people uh, that are very prone to spending money. Um, uh, some of the cliches of Chinese travelers, while true, like group and they really want shop, et cetera, et cetera. Some of, some of it is, is still in a big way true, but they're also, becoming more, the younger generation is more individualistic, wants to go beyond the general stuff that uh, tourists uh, want to do. Um, then there's the online travel companies, Priceline Expedia have consolidated a lot of the, the big players. Sea um, Trip in China, TripAdvisor to some extent, even the TripAdvisor is having a bunch of trouble now mm. uh, in different ways, um, but still a very, very, very strong company and brand. Um, so, 
online travel has consolidated. The big battle is between uh, the hotels and airlines that want to attract consumers directly to their sites or, or platforms um, versus paying a commission anywhere from you know 10 to 20 percent to the online travel agencies um, and having to buy that consumer again and again and again. Mm. Um, and so, so that's the big battle as well. Hotels are putting real push on uh, trying to attract consumers directly. Loyalty programs on hospitality have become much better compared to airlines where they have degraded. Um, the other big uh, battle, obviously, is Airbnb-type companies versus hospitality itself. Right. Um, the other big story that very few if people, I, f I think, cover in business is like how low-cost airlines completely changed the world. Uh, the fact that low-cost airlines came in back in the 70s and 80s and 90s and changed large swaths of the world that had never traveled before, Southeast Asia, India now, um, China, uh, Europe obviously completely, and how that opened up the world is worthy of more anthropological studies than, than it has gotten. Um, so wow. there's so many changes that are happening in travel and it's just fascinating that it intersects with everything. That's why, so the long story short, that's why it's interesting for us to cover. And that's why we have Skift. And I, I appreciate you sitting down with me and kind of charting out the journey there. Of course. Rafa, I appreciate it. Thank you. It's, it's amazing to me how Rafa has managed to monetize information and truth and believe me, there are so many different segments of the media industry, journalism in particular, that need to continue to pay attention to this. And hey, it's not just journalism. More and more companies are trying to tell their stories. Individuals are trying to tell those stories, their own stories. And the method that you need to use to get that message out to the right people, that continues to be elusive. Here's a guy who seems to continue to figure it out. I'm John Fort from CNBC. This has been Fort Knox, rich ideas and powerful people. Subscribe on Apple's podcast app or wherever fine podcasts are distributed. Check out the reviews on iTunes. Leave one of your own. Also, subscribe to the Fort Knox channel on YouTube. That's F-O-R-T-T-K-N-O-X.com slash YouTube. Follow me, John Fort, on Facebook and Twitter. You'll see video from some of these interviews, and you can say hi to me live, usually Wednesdays at 2 p.m. Eastern. There I tackle some of the most interesting business and economic issues with a little help from my friends at CNBC and from you. Just go to YouTube and search for Fort Knox, or go to Facebook or Twitter, search for John Fort. Follow me. You'll figure out what to do from there. Also, LinkedIn. Don't forget about LinkedIn. That's a great platform. Meanwhile, share this. Tell a friend. Drop me a note on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, FortKnox.com, LinkedIn. And as always, thank you for lending an ear.